The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So it'll make my ears. Let's see. How's this now? Can everyone hear okay? This works? Yes. Okay, good. So welcome back. This is the fourth uh, uh, evening in our four-week series, the last class. After this, you'll have graduated from the intermediate level. (laughs) The question is, what's next? So, um, um, so it might be nice just to take some questions. If any of you have any questions about the teachings uh, last week, or the instructions, or the homework, or your own meditation practice related to all this, uh, it's kind of nice to start that way. I, I get a sense of what's happening with you, and and the, your concerns and interests, and also it lets people who are late kind of come in before we start. So uh, one question I have is, um, you know, about the, the framework of the four aspects of the yeah. experience. Right. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the uh, among the four, the the three of you know the body and the sort of the mental state and the thinking, those are kind of to me very straightforward, uh-huh. right? They're direct experiences. Right. But then the feeling tone is kind of a judgment of those, right? So first I'm kind of a little, you know, it's like a secondary thing about those experiences, those three other components. Yeah, I think that it can be, it can seem secondary, but if if you start paying careful attention, I think for most people, uh, the simple uh, reaction to things being pleasant or unpleasant drives a lot of human behavior. <clears throat> and so we might think, sometimes we think we're much more sophisticated than we actually are. And sometimes just because we kind of feel uncomfortable about something, we pull back and we justify pulling back. Um, but the, but uh, what you're pointing to is also true that the difference between pleasant and unpleasant and our judgment of it sometimes are not so obvious. Sometimes there's, there's a gray area between them. But some, also some things are just kind of unpleasant in and of themselves. If you put your hand on the hot f- stove... Uh, that's unpleasant, and you pull back. If you go into a, a certain um, certain sounds, you know, like a screeching across a chalkboard, is unpleasant, and we re- react so immediately to the unpleasant, to the unpleasantness of it. Some things are unpleasant because of evaluation. You go into a, you know, a social situation is very noisy and loud, and some people might find any noisy, packed social situation unpleasant someone else might find it intensely pleasant, like can't wait to get into the middle of it. So that involves a little bit of history, associations, personality, many things. But uh, uh, in Buddhism, it's considered to be one of the primary uh, kind of motivating uh, things that motivate us to be for or against something. It's par- primary criteria for judging whether we like something or not like. So in Buddhism, it's often encouraged to look at this. And what people say who kind of do this say that it actually can be quite empowering because it can be a difficult situation, a complicated situation to be in where the first instinct is to analyze it, figure out, look at oneself. But then you realize the whole situation is basically unpleasant. And then you say, I know how to be with unpleasant. And so I can just be present for the unpleasantness of it it, 
and find my equanimity and find my peace without having to kind of react and respond to the whole gamut of things. So it's a way of sometimes of simplifying. It's sometimes a way of getting to the, the beginning source of when we start to be reactive. And, um, and so it's said to be a very, very useful exercise. And I found it very helpful in myself to take this into account. And that's why in Buddhism it's not considered to be secondary. It's one of the four primary areas to, to look at. So um, um, another way maybe that helps to understand it is, um, is there can be judgments involved in deciding whether something is pleasant or unpleasant. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that if you make the judgment that it's pleasant or unpleasant, that's the basis for reactions. And so by seeing the difference between the reaction and the basic experience or evaluation of pleasant and unpleasant gives you, f- gives you some certain freedom or choice maybe not to react. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, pr- again, one of the primary values is learning that space of not reacting, learning the gap, learning to distinguish stimulus and response. And, uh, and that one of the important roles of mindfulness mm-hmm. is, is to place, pl- place us in the, with a kind of attention in our present moment experience so there's a kind of a pause or a gap between stimulus and response. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's helpful. Um, to follow up on that, yeah, to follow up on that is te- just in terms of how to do actually do it technically. <laughs> I'm using the word probably uh, yeah. a little straight, uh, rigidly, but you know when there at any moment that there are things happening simultaneously, right? Like a bodily feeling or emotion yeah. or a yeah. thought. And then I, I was a little confused. Uh, am I supposed to then say, oh, you know, for this bodily feeling, is that pleasant or unpleasant? And for this emotion, is that, you know, I'm kind of like very busy kind of evaluating right, right. all these things. Good. So, yes, so, so, yeah. yes, so, um, so the principle that we follow, it's yeah. a nice principle to have when you do a mindfulness meditation. And that is, whatever you do, do it in such a way that it helps you be calm. <laughs> so if you start jumping around trying to catch everything, you're not going to be calm. So what it means is maybe you should just go do it slowly. Take your time, do one thing at once. This is the first lesson I got when I was introduced to this practice was this one here. I, w- I was doing a retreat, so I was practicing all day alone. The next day I was supposed to go the first day. The next day I went to see the teacher and for a meeting and explained what was going on for me. And I said, well, you know, it's, um, I understand I'm supposed to pay attention to everything, but I, thought, I was smart enough to know I can't do everything, but I'll just do sounds. So I chased all the sounds in the monastery to get as many of them as I could. And all I got was a headache. So I went to the teacher and said, explain this to him. And he thought I was being silly. And he said, um, not everything at once. Just take your time and do one thing at a time in a calm way. And there's no, there's no hurry. You don't have to get everything. The idea, what we're trying to do here is to develop... Um, it isn't so much we're trying to see everything that's going on, but we're learning to see in such a way that the mind finds equanimity, finds calm, finds peace. And so don't chase things. And so what's nice to think about in this practice is the default is to bring your mindfulness to what's obvious. And uh, these four categories that I said last week, uh, you could go through them. Some people find it helpful to go through them systematically, one, two, three, four. It just kind of creates a schema, they know what they're doing, they're not confused, and they just kind of look very relaxed and actually helps them get concentrated and settled. Other people find that it's just too busy to be going through a schema like that. But then it's good to know what those are 
because as we practice, then it becomes kind of second nature. Oh, oh, that's what they mean. There's a feeling. Oh, now it's oh yeah. So the 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 mental state. This is really prominent right now. So it's more like more 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 organic how it arises as we try to stay present. So different times, different people. Uh, these four have different roles. Okay. Yes. Um, I, I found uh, recently that a reason I, I can't concentrate on the breath is that my mind simply directs its awareness to whatever it thinks is most interesting or important at the moment, and I have no control over it. It's as instantaneous as just flipping a, a light switch. So, so, <laughs> so, a, yeah. so a very interesting way of practicing is... Uh, is uh, you know, so for beginners, it doesn't always work, but you've been doing it for some time. And is um, is uh, don't direct your mind anywhere particular, but uh, uh, track what the mind is interested in. So you you, yeah. compa- you accompany the mind. You stay along. Maybe you're right behind it, <laughs> but you, you you follow and and you're right there for what it, where it goes. Yeah, that that might help. Because one time I thought I was on the bet. If you play a game, I could make it interesting by making it into a game. Yeah. And then I thought, well, but I'm a little tired. I was actually on the breath for a long, long time yeah. doing the game. And then I realized it's because I wasn't actually, I was flipping back and forth really quickly between the thing my mind thought was more yeah. important and, and my breath. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. So, so also the other thing to keep in mind, yeah. and this is, this is what was covered in the intro class of meditation, yeah. is that the general idea is we pay attention to whatever is most compelling, most predominant. Yeah. So if there's such a strong drive to think about things and be interested in things, then it's important to stop focusing on the breath and turn your attention to the mental activity. That, you know, and be mindful of that. Allow yourself to do that, but really be mindful of it. And then once you're there, established there, then if it's helpful, you can go kind of tease apart the four different aspects. You can, there might be a physicality. There might be energy and buzzing involved. There might be tension involved. Yeah. It might be helpful to see that that's part of it as well. It might be very unpleasant or very pleasant and it, so it might be helpful to just to kind of hold and be present for the pleasant and unpleasantness. Something uh, very interesting starts happening if we just hold something in awareness for a while. And then you might be aware there's a general mind state that's associated with being that way. And then there might be particular mental activities that worth, like the hindrances that might be worthwhile noticing. Well, I've noticed if there's a hindrance, if it's strong, it's very obvious. It just sort of charges yeah. out. This is very simple. I call it stepping stones. It's like, oh... <laughs> and then it says from that to a, another thought that I think, and then from that to another one, and it's really simple. There's not a lot of emotion behind great, it. Great. If it's um, simple, then you might try just just let it let the mind do what it wants to yeah. do. But uh, uh, be right next to it with your mindfulness. So you actually watch it. You're tracking it and seeing what's going on. Yeah. Okay. So you give freedom to the mind, which is very nice. But you're right there, and uh, and being present and mindful creates a whole different. It's like a whole different world we step into if we're mindful. If you let your mind go freely without being aware of what you're doing, if you do it too much, you'll become crazy. <laughs> or not maybe, you know, some of us. It's too late. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> yes. Okay, that's better. Uh, so I think I had a textbook case of what you were describing. Um, I was 
feeling the unpleasantness and then I realize, okay, there's uh, there's a physical feeling to it in my throat. There's a, there's an, a restlessness which translated to something else when I, I did the respectful uh, attention uh-huh. meditation. And it's like, oh, this restlessness is due to anxiety, which is due to something else. And it just kind of flowed from there. And when I paid attention to that physical feeling, it kind of fantastic settled uh-huh. um so that was that was great i think the thing that i struggle with and this is probably just because i'm early in my practice but um t- tell me what you think it's i'm still sort of like just looking at all these things and so all the things you talked about with the seven factors of awakening not really sure i'm getting there it's sort of at the mindfulness level so is that uh, just sort of being at the beginner yeah stage? don't worry too much about it and um, and at some point, uh, some of them might peek in a little bit, the little presence of something, and and like you, like for example, what you describe now, you had mindfulness, and you had investigation. You were you were tracking and following it. That's that's investigation, and you had some. Uh, you were engaged in doing it, and that's the energy factor. So you had the first three factors of awakening there. And then at some point, it looks to me. I, it's possible at some point you followed through and you got calmer that uh, there was so, something maybe it was a very teeny bit amount but some joy some satisfaction from that yeah. was that true? Yeah. so that's, that's the joy factor and did you become calmer in that process? that's a tranquility factor mm-hmm. and uh, then, then did you get concentrated? maybe? Yeah. that's a concentration factor of awakening and was there any, any greater equanimity than when you started? There you go. They're all there. <laughs> and uh, so the, the, one of the ideas is that even though they're so mild and maybe in the background we normally wouldn't recognize them because they're so, you know, so, so mild, the recognition of healthy factors of the mind strengthens them, highlights them, and makes them come alive more and grow. So it's actually a good thing to notice these things. But again, the principle is don't, don't get busy doing a lot of, you know, it's all these lists, you know, like, you know, which list should I use today that, you know, uh, it just, just kind of, you, we, we learn to internalize this and then it becomes more like second nature. But these are the different elements that come into play. So this is the, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the mind is, and the heart are kind of like an ecosystem with lots and lots of pieces in the ecosystem that work together. And so as we learn the different aspects of the ecosystem, we learn how to support it, bring it to some kind of harmony. Um, uh, and um, <clears throat> so at first, you know, there's a, this, this learning and different aspects of it. So let me, uh, I like to, what I'd like to do is a little bit review what we've done so far. And um, so the idea is that this is an intermediate class on the building on the intro to meditation class that we teach here. So that's kind of the framework, the foundation for it. And so as we engage in this mindfulness practice, one of the first things that many people have to contend with is the obstacles to being mindful. The hindr- it's called the hindrances. And rather than taking them as a failing or a personal failing, the hindrances become um, material that we have to learn, become wise, wise about. So it's good to know what they, they are, what they are for your, your specialty, which hindrances are your specialty. So you can become wise about them, recognize them, and they don't hijack you too easily anymore. 
So learning the kind of learning what gets in the way of mindfulness was the first week. The second week was to look at uh, what are some of the uh, uh, factors of the mind, uh, activities of the mind that support mindfulness. Because mindfulness is just one fact, faculty of the mind. But what are some of the other factors of attention that support us to be mindful? And they're always going to be there to some degree, but to know that there's a kind of, a, you're, you're mustering together different attentional factors of the mind to, to come together to be mindful, it's, um, you know, is understanding the bigger picture of what's happening. So there is a certain degree of confidence or lack of confidence. There is a degree of effort or energy involved. There's a degree of mindfulness itself. There's a degree of concentration involved and a degree of discernment or kind of understanding what's going on. And those five things support the practice. Now we don't want to again be busy, but how, we can look at how, what, what's, how, what are, what are the, how are these engaged? How are they coming into play to help us be settled, present, and maybe getting calm with our experience? And it might be that there's a lack of confidence. The confidence in the practice, confidence in oneself. And maybe it's helpful to kind of figure out how to have a little more confidence or bring along more confidence. Some people are just, uh, uh, some people can be, have a lack of confidence for no reason, just because it's, it's a good idea, <laughs> seemingly, just like, you know, it's like second nature. And so it doesn't take a lot to consider that, you know, recognize it there and say, well, actually, I do have some confidence. Let me call on it. Or maybe there's other ways of cultivating confidence. We can look at the, how much effort we're applying. Uh, there are times when maybe the mind is scattered or the mind is very uh, dull, where maybe it's worthwhile putting more effort into the practice, engaging energetically more with seeing, being present for the experience. Or if we're already pretty energized and maybe over-energized, maybe what we need to do is to put less energy into the practice to calm down. Uh, perhaps there's no, there's, the mind is scattered, and it helps to kind of rein the mind in. And so we need a little bit of concentration. So maybe you should work on concentration a little bit. And one of, the, one of the ways to work on concentration is just stay with the breathing for a while. Just hang in there. And that can be settling, calming, focusing. And then uh, if things are not going well, or things are difficult, mind is scattered, and you're hard time being present, maybe what's useful is some discernment, some wisdom. Look around and see what's going on with you and see if some kind of simple adjustment is useful. Do you need to sit and meditate with your eyes open so you don't drift off so much? Do you need to kind of turn your attention and do, rather than doing mindfulness of breathing, do mindfulness of thinking because your mind is so scattered? Or maybe there's a lot of emotions that are keeping you kind of in turmoil. So maybe what's needed is mindfulness of emotions. Very simple kind of looking at the situation, trying to understand what's going on to see what's needed. If it's not too obvious, you don't want to get strained and focus too much and trying to figure it out. Um, the best thing to do when things aren't, you know, you ask some questions, you try to look, try to understand, and nothing clearly presents itself as an answer what to do, then sometimes it's just ba- best to go back to the breathing because you, you want to keep it simple. So that was the second week. The third week, the primary thing uh, was that once you're present, and the attentional factors are mustered together and you're kind of here for the experience and you're ready to kind of look at it more carefully, uh, that um, 
it's not just there to be present in a vague way, but to have some clarity about what's actually making up the experience. What is the experience that you're actually having? And subjective experiences have these four different component parts. Maybe others as well, but these are the four that the tradition emphasizes. And so uh, most subjective experiences will have a physical component, some way in which it's expressed or felt, manifested physically. They'll have some kind of uh, feeling tone, the pleasant and unpleasant, or neither. There's usually some kind of mental attitude, mental state, mental mood, some kind of mental kind of relationship that we have to the experience um, that is useful to look at and notice. And the last is uh, there might be different thoughts, activities in the mind, hindrances operating, the seven factors of awakening operating, different things that are kind of like the, the pieces of the puzzle that we can notice as well. So once we're present for something, uh, one way to enter into it more deeply is to start kind of seeing what's actually going on here. Um, what's kind of, you know, if, 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 you, if, you take off the, if you take off the skin of, I don't know, something, and you can see what's going on inside, what's happening. Take off the wrapping and you can see what's happening. Often we live in the wrapping of things through the generalized concepts and ideas we have. And what we try to do in mindfulness practice is to take off, unwrap the concepts and ideas and judgments we have about something and try to see it more carefully. What's actually this experience like in the subjective world? Right here and now. Not in the past, not where it came from, not where it's going, not where it means, but actually the immediacy of the experience. So these four things are helpful for that. So the obstacles, the attentional support for mindfulness, and then the, the, what we can study or pay attention to when we're mindful. Today, the topic is the insights of insight meditation. So mindfulness you know, that we practice here is part of insight meditation, or the insight meditation center. And uh, the word insight is a very important word for us, and um, it's kind of like a central focus of, of uh, the direction we're taking mindfulness. And so the question is, what are these insights that come with practice? And we say insight is not just simply seeing things more clearly in terms of seeing that there's a physical aspect, there's a feeling to an aspect, there's a mental state, there's these hindrances operating, there's factors of awakening operating. Um, but it's actually seeing what's called the universal characteristics of experience. And the idea is that all experiences have some quality characteristics to them as they occur, which are can be transformative to see. And it's not easy to see with the busy, ordinary mind as we go about our life. And one of the functions of developing this practice is to be able to get behind, take off the wrapping of our experience and really see more deeply. And the first of these three characteristics is the changing nature of things the impermanence or inconstant nature, that their things are constantly sh- fluxing and shifting and moving and arising and passing and, and um, you know, in flux. And, um, and this is not as, you know, a, a um, new insight that Buddhists have because this, most people understand that there's a lot of impermanence and change in life. But in this practice, we kind of uh, focus on this insight and, and highlight it in a way that helps that insight uh, be transformative. And I'll talk about the transformation in a bit.
And, um, and so uh, beginning to see deeply into the impermanent nature of phenomena, into our experience, is the first of the three insights. However, uh, to have these insights of seeing change and impermanence, uh, what we're actually cultivating in practice, what we're hoping to have is to have the insight to sight. But what we're trying to cultivate in the practice uh, and develop, what we can hopefully try to develop for ourselves, is, um, and uh, earlier I talked about becoming calmer, we're trying to develop stability and calm as part of stability to have a stable mind, a settled mind, a mind that's not jumping around too fast and, and uh, jumping so fast you can't really see what's going on, you can't even keep up with it, but a mind that's somewhat concentrated, stable, settled. So it's kind of like you're uh, grounded or rooted here in a, in a grounded, steady, kind of settled way. It turns out that when the mind in our inner life has some stability to it, then it's well positioned to start noticing how our experience is constantly shifting and changing. If we emphasize noticing change and impermanence, first and foremost, there are some people who find that quite distressing. Some people have very uh, um, unstable lives and uh, they in situations that where there's not much security, maybe a lot of violence, maybe a lot of poverty, a lot of uncertainty in their lives. And if we go to a Buddhist center and they tell you everything's impermanent, that could actually be uh, even more unstabilizing to hear that. Because their life is so unstable to begin with, and then there seems like there's no hope. You know, if everything's, un everything's impermanent in my life already, and then they tell me it's un everything's impermanent, things change. <laughs> Um, you know, it's, it can be quite discouraging. So that's why one of the functions of the practice is to cultivate stability. Because with a strong sense of inner stability, sense of like your mind, heart, inner life is kind of here and grounded and stable, that provides the, the, the um, platform from which an effective way of seeing things change, how changing things are. Make sense? It turns out that there's three different things we're trying to develop in practice, three categories of things. Each of those is the kind of the, the foundation for having the three insights. So I talked about stability being the foundation to see, um, in a sense, seeing instability, having stability to be able to see things changing. Um, the other is to see um, to have, have a sense of well-being. And this practice is trying to, cult to help us cultivate a sense of well-being. Classically in Buddhism, they use the word joy or happiness for what's supposed to come with practice. Uh, I just like to use the word well-being because it's, it's vaguer than joy and happiness. So it's easier to find yourself in the word. Uh, if you're like, supposed to be joyful, what does that mean? And then you're supposed to be cheery. And it's, you know, it gets complicated too quickly. But the idea is to cultivate a sense of well-being. And it's not something that we do exactly you know, so actively, like I'm supposed to be this way, but uh, there's a way in which as we let go of the hindrances, as we let go of our distractions, as we begin to settle down, become more stable, and have a kind of focus in our attention in the present moment, there tends to be the kind of well-being that comes 
that is similar to how when we're absorbed in reading a really good book, perhaps, or, or absorbed in doing a craft, or absorbed in doing a musical instrument, or something that really engages us. There's something uh, very satisfying in being fully, wholeheartedly present and engaged in what we're doing. Or it's something very satisfying to being present and no longer having the hindrances controlling the mind. Like, finally, I'm here. I can be here in a simple way. This feels so good. It feels so relaxing compared to how stressful I was or how I was spinning out or the mind was being pulled in all kinds of ways. So there's ways of kind of recognizing that it feels good. It feels satisfying. It feels nice to be present. And so we're trying to, this practice leads us to some modicum of well-being. Um, with that we- sense of well-being, then we're in a good position to be able to look to see um, how many of the things that we're involved in in our life have a certain quality of unsatisfactoriness in them. And the unsatisfactory, the primary way in which things are unsatisfactory is, in Buddhism at least, you don't have to agree with this, but is, is unsatisfactory to provide lasting and permanent happiness. So if you think that, um, you know, all, all kinds of things that we think, this is going to do it for me. If I get this job, this relationship, this car, this home, this, the, you know, then I can finally, you know, be happy. And maybe you get it. And it lasts for a little while. I remember how much when I was, I think I was nine, I really, 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 really wanted a, a um, I think it was like a, maybe it was, maybe I was younger, hopefully I was a little bit younger, but, I wanted some kind of machine gun, <laughs> a plastic toy machine gun. And, and I think my parents were not into getting me a machine gun. But you know, so I really wanted this machine gun for Christmas. So they gave it to me. I was happy for about five minutes. <laughs> and I think that after that evening, I never played with a machine gun. So. Machine gun was unsatisfactory for lasting happiness and well-being. You know, which you know. Uh, so, so there's something there's something that's about the way that human beings tend to interact with the world and what we want, what we think that's going to make us happy. That we tend to latch onto things, which, which if we invest too much into them, expect too much out of them, we actually end up suffering more. So there's something about seeing the unsatisfactory nature of things, that they're unsatisfactory to as a hang on to, to hold on to, to cling to, which is one of the function of the, of the practice. But if someone is miserable in their life, and, you, and they hear the Buddha saying, well, everything's unsatisfactory, that's just really depressing. But if you first have a sense of well-being in your practice, then you have that as a kind of the, the foundation or the backdrop for appreciating that things are unsatisfactory to cling to. It's not such bad news because you know you're feeling good. Does that make sense? The last thing is um, part of the function of this practice is to cultivate confidence. A confidence or a confident sense of your efficacy, a confident sense of yourself, to have a sense of a stronger sense of personal value, personal 
appropriate sense of importance. So just being here in an effective um, sense of appropriate agency, engagement, um, that you count, that you know yourself well, you can monitor yourself well. And so we have some of the qualities which uh, modern psychologists might call a strong sense of self. Though in Buddhism, uh, we wouldn't call it a strong sense of self because we want, we want to keep it from being too generalized into reifying or solidifying an idea that I am this way. But rather we want to develop these qualities that are associated with strong sense of self. And the one that I highlight here is confidence. And these qualities and confidence, they are the foundation for the third characteristic, which is uh, to um, understand or to see that... Uh, um, that there is nothing in the, is nothing that makes sense to grab onto and hold onto as being this is truly who I am. There might be all kinds of things you're, you are in, in a simple way, but the idea of grasping on and clinging to it and really this definitively is who I am, that causes a lot of suffering. So by having a sense of stability, a sense of well-being, and a sense of confidence, that provides the foundation needed to have this effective insight into uh, things are changing all the time, things are um, um, unsatisfactory for to cling to, hold on to too tightly, and the one that does, and then with a sense of confidence, then it's okay to kind of give up holding on and clinging, grasping, insisting on holding on to something, this is who I am. Some self-identity, self-image, something. So to have these three insights, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and what Buddhism is called not-self, help soften or loosen up the grip that the mind has on some of the things it's holding on to so tightly. And it turns out that many people hold on one way or the other to some kind of concept of self, idea of who they are. Even people who are intensely shy and seem like they don't have a strong sense of self, sometimes are holding on to some idea of self in being shy. People who are conceited have some idea of, you know, they're holding on to something. People who feel inadequate as a self are kind of holding on to the idea they're inadequate, or they're bad, or that I'm great, that I'm wonderful. All these ideas, and you know, it's a you know, it's a large, large uh, range of things that people kind of use to define themselves. When we hold on to it tightly, because the, everything's changing, everything's moving in flux, it's actually hard to end up feeling happy in a lasting, permanent way. Or in some of the happiness that comes from clinging to self-ideas that, uh, that come, like if someone, are pretty fragile. So if someone praises you, you might feel happy, but, you know, the next person comes along and criticizes you, and then you're crushed because you're kind of used to the happiness. But if you don't cling or expect or define yourselves, but are more fluid and relaxed about who you are, then people praise you, they criticize you, and you're much more kind of relaxed about it. So, three things we try to develop in practice, and three, th- and from that comes three insights. 
So I said earlier to the first question that we use some principles to guide us in doing the practice. We have it's like, kind, of like, kind of like having a north star. This is where we're, this is the direction we're going. It's not easy. You can't manufacture it. You can't be in a hurry. But it's good to know this is the, where we're heading. We're heading I, to you. I said calm, calm or stability, kind of this calm, stable presence. Some some degree of well-being. People who meditate a lot or for some time and really get skilled at it, that sense of well-being can in fact be a, a strong joy and happiness that really kind of fills a person quite strongly. Um, and then uh, this comes this um, confidence, self-confidence, and all the kind of other associated ideas of, you know, what we might call a strong sense of self. And um, that's what we're kind of, that's like the North Star, that's the direction we're trying to go, to kind of, you know, and so the discernment part, the wisdom part of mindfulness, kind of a little bit tracking what's going on, is saying, is, is how I am right now supporting me in this direction? Am I trying too hard in the practice? I'm not trying enough. Is it appropriate to focus on the breathing now? Is that what's going to calm me and stabilize me? Or do I really need to look at uh, my busy mind that's spinning out? And if I hold that, maybe then it can settle down. Maybe I need to look at my emotions, like you talked about. And then, so, because what supports you in this direction? And then, as those things get developed and are there, the day will come where what's revealed to you are the three insights. These three insights in are not beliefs that you're supposed to believe in. They are not something you're supposed to manufacture. But it's more like you're supposed to kind of do your practice and then wait until they show themselves to you. And then to recognize that these are important. Because there's some way in which seeing impermanence, for example, really see how things are changing all the time, that it kind of begins to, well, maybe then I don't grab onto them. Maybe I'll start relaxing more and just kind of relax in the flow of the river of change rather than try to block it or stop it or, or you know, possess it or something. So is this, I, make, I hope this makes enough sense to make, maybe it makes more sense of it if we do a guided meditation around it. So if you want to stand, because you've been sitting for a while and refresh your legs and backs and whatever, <clears throat>
So it can be useful to consider that the meditation begins, mindfulness begins, when you start giving some attention to your posture. And you might move around a little bit, sway a little bit, and kind of see if you can, you know, you can get connected to your body a little bit and help you find a kind of stable, upright posture where you feel somewhat balanced on your sitting bones. Where hopefully you feel some stable support under you, whether it's under your feet or your legs or your bottom. And that you have a, your your torso is upright perhaps in a way <clears throat> that just a little bit expresses a sense of confidence here. And then to take a few long, slow, deep breaths As you exhale, letting go of your thoughts and your concerns. These deep breaths helping with the transition to be here. And then letting your breathing return to normal. And take a few moments to look through your body to see if there's any obvious places that you can relax without losing the uprightness you have. Maybe it's possible to relax and soften around the face. soften in your shoulders. And perhaps relaxing your belly. Becoming aware of your body breathing. Perhaps becoming aware of how the full experience of breathing help connect you to your physical being. Breathing always occurs in the present moment. And if you're aware of your breathing, you're connected.
perhaps as you exhale, taking that release, that exhale, as a time to let go into the pull of gravity, to relax, to settle more deeply into your body. as you exhale, to let go of whatever you're thinking about in favor of experiencing breathing more fully. And if anything is going on for you that's more compelling than breathing, experiment with bringing a relaxed, calming attention to recognize what that is. And then as you're sitting here, can you notice whatever degree of stability is present for you? Is there some place in your body that feels stable, settled, calm, It could be anywhere, it could be in the hands or the feet, the legs, it could be in the torso. And 
if you find some place that has some feeling of stability, for a few moments here, you might breathe with that place. Or imagine your breathing goes through it. To allow yourself to be really there, feeling that sense of stability. As you're aware, as you're mindful, can your awareness share some of the qualities of that stability? So there's a calm, stable attention. Or a calm, stable way of being as you are mindful. And is there, then is there any place within you where you feel some modicum of well-being? Some feeling of satisfaction or something that feels nice within. And if there's even a slightest sense of well-being anywhere, tune into that for a few moments here. Maybe breathing with it. And is there some way that you can let yourself feel a sense of well-being or gladness in being aware, in being present and mindful? This is good. To whatever degree you can be aware, it's connected to a sense of well-being. Even if some of the things you're experiencing are uncomfortable, perhaps in the very nature of being mindful of it, being aware of it, can bring you a sense of rightness or well-being.
then as you sit here, is there any place inside of you where you physically perhaps or mentally you feel some degree of confidence When you feel confident, where does that feeling reside in your body? Can you allow your mindfulness to be supported by this confidence? you can notice whatever it is that's changing in your experience. Whatever in your experience is shifting and moving and appearing and disappearing. The sound of my voice comes and goes. Sound of traffic. How you perceive different sensations of your body comes and goes. Your attention shifts and moves around. It's constantly changing how we experience the body. Perhaps you notice that your thoughts are shifting and changing. Notice whatever it is that's changing in your experience. If something doesn't change, just let it be. But notice change.
there's a kind of freedom in allowing change to change. Let it be itself without resisting or wanting to be different. then perhaps you can also notice those things in your experience which clearly are not worth holding on to for your permanent happiness. No need to latch on or hold on. Notice those things which are unsatisfactory to cling to, hold on to. And then as you stay present for your experience, changing nature of experience, the direct experience of here and now, notice those experiences that are occurring. That don't need to be used to define the self. No need to make them me, myself or mine. Notice those experiences which can occur independent of self-image, self-ideas. They just occur. The sounds in the room, sensations of the body, feelings. Maybe even thoughts can just be seen as something arising or passing. No need to make them mine or me. And then the last couple of minutes for the sitting, I invite you to just sit quietly, being mindful in whatever way you'd like, whatever way that feels supportive and nice for you to sit here.
And then to end this sitting, you can take a few long, slow, deep breaths. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes. So the insights of insight meditation is a perception as opposed to a belief, kind of a perception of seeing how, in what way our experience is constantly in flux. Seeing in some way that our experience is is unsatisfactory for the purposes of holding on to or clinging to almost for any, for any purpose at all. And that our experience in some way or other um, doesn't have to be automatically identified with the self. That our experience can just, we can just let the experience be without appropriating it or without defining ourselves by it, without making it me, myself, or mine. It can just be an experience, the simplicity of it. So the, this, having these insights is very, are very uh, creates a lot of peace, a lot of inner sense of well-being, because a lot of the stress we feel in life comes from clinging to things, trying to keep things from changing, holding on for permanence, wanting things to be a certain way. A lot of stress comes in life where we're trying too much to hold on to things that are going to make us happy. And paradoxically, the holding on to things to make us happy uh, make us unhappy. If you want to be happy, it's better not to hold on to happiness. And so seeing the unsatisfactory, seeing the clinging that comes to wanting things to be a certain way, to this is going to make us happy, this is going to make everything work for us, and it doesn't really work that way. It's not very satisfying to do that. That's a perception, we can see that for ourselves. At first we might just see it in some areas, but with time we see it in all areas. And then um, to have this insight, this clear perception that it's fine to leave our experience alone without appropriating it or def- using it to define who we are. Many of us rush headlong into, we don't even rush headlong, we are always kind of operating under this kind of very tight uh, idea of me, myself, and mine. It's happening to me, I'm the agent, it's, you know, it's all about me. And it, certainly it's reasonable to have that to some degree, but a lot of stress comes in life from really around this whole notion of self and what is myself and what's not myself. And there's something, the meditation points to a simpler way of being that it comes from insight, from perceiving, oh, it doesn't make any sense to constantly make this into myself or define myself by it. I can kind of rest in the experience 
of letting, let, not, not making it a self out of it. So it's an insight into not-self. These insights, as I say, are revealed. That they, they show themselves at some point when the conditions are right. Mindfulness practice is a powerful practice that's moving us in the direction of creating those conditions that allows these insights to happen in a deep way. It's nothing you have to figure out. You don't have to decide that this doesn't make sense or, you know, or how do I make sense of this? Because it's not about making sense of it. It's about having an obvious perception. Oh, this, you know, look at that. It'd be like, um, you know, trying to grab water in your, in your fist and the water just squirts out. And then you know, you can't really hold water tightly without, you know, you know, just, it just doesn't stay there. And so you see that for yourself. So it's that kind of immediacy that these insights work. Some people have them relatively early in their meditation practice. Some people, it might take many years before these really come alive. But it's what gives the, the title to the kind of meditation we do, insight meditation. So that you might see them in a way that's supportive at some point, and you know this is part of the game. This is part of what we're supporting us to move us towards freedom. Freedom from clinging or holding or contraction or something. So. In that guided meditation, I was trying to give you a little flavor of that, if I could. So I don't know if I was able to do that, but was that interesting to do that for you? And did it reveal something nice that kind of pointed to what I was trying to teach here? Anybody want to say something about it? So, like, I'd love to hear some comments. Cedric, if you can pass the mic to Cedric there. Thank you. Um, I appreciated how you first guided us to find some place in our body uh, that um, or we could feel the sense of um, stability, well-being, and confidence. And <coughs> it was kind of feeling nice to dwell in that place, in those places uh-huh. for, for a little while. And then, personally, it was quite easy for me to notice change in all of my experience. Um, The unsatisfactoriness, I'm not so sure. But then when we got into not-self, and then I got back to those places, that actually caused some distress in myself because it's not like I want to define myself by those places, but I can't kind of want to feel some sa- some sense of safety in that sense of confidence, Sa- well-being, and so yeah. kind of reminding myself that those are not more myself than any other experiences. Kind of diminished the 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 nice feeling I had about them and uh-huh. created some distress. Great. So Great. I appreciate hearing that. 
So you get a sense maybe also that the, the stronger the confidence is, the easier it is to feel safe without holding on to a notion of self, defining ourselves or being seen a certain way. Someone else? So um, you told us to focus on a place in the body which is calm and good. So initially my breathing was very nice. I was in a groove. Then I noticed uh, the subtle things in my body started coming to to my attention. I noticed I was very hungry. (laughs) Then it it was like a torrent of thoughts. I was, uh, it's about food, food, food. So I would bring my attention back and um, like again wander. Um, so it, it was um, interesting that it didn't happen in the beginning, but once I got a little relaxed and I was in the groove, all the subtler things started coming to the surface. Uh-huh. Um, so is this normal? Is, uh, it's quite normal. I think that uh, often when we're busy in our minds, busy in our lives, we're living kind of on the surface and kind of we're distracted from our distractions. And so sometimes when those kind of distractions and surface distractions quiet down, we calm down, we rediscover there's a whole kind of uh, uh, collection of things inside that are bubbling up that need to be resolved, need to be dealt with, need to be focused. They need their time in the sun. And so we sit down and suddenly these things arise. And um, so then we're mindful of that. We bring our mindful with that, with around that. We learn how to work with it. You know, it's, I think I, maybe I said this earlier, but um, it's, um, it's uh, you know, I think it's best not to, I think I said the first week, uh, don't try to be too good at this meditation. Because if, you try, if you're too good at it, it, you probably just mess it up. So this is one of the things you're better off to not doing too well. Then you're more relaxed around it, and it kind of unfolds more. And the other is, don't worry, um, everything that arises, one of the principles of this practice is we sit down to meditate and and be here. There's no mistakes. That whatever bubbles up for you is probably what you need to bring your mindfulness to. And and using this principle, there's no mistakes when you meditate in your experience. There's nothing that shouldn't be happening. It's just something else to bring your attention to. And it's probably there for a good reason probably needs some attention. Makes meditation a lot easier rather than, oh no, that shouldn't be happening. Or what's called the um, uh, if only mind comes in. If only this wasn't happening, then I could meditate. There's no need for that because whatever arises can be taken as part of the meditation. So no mistakes. So anybody else want to say a little bit what that was like? If you, especially I want to know if did it work a little bit to give you a sense of what I was teaching? Or should I assume that the quiet means no? <laughs> well, I keep going back to your previous comments about meditation and when it comes to thoughts that are coming in pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And as I was applying these, uh, the, the uh, 
three insights, I didn't, I, it didn't really sense feeling a place of uh, confidence or calm, but just a place of neutral. Uh-huh. And it, but it was really nice because I, on the periphery are all these thoughts that are floating out there. So they're like satellites, and any one of them can enter in, from orbit yeah. and then take over if I grasp onto it. Yeah. Oh, so, so your sense of being neutral supported you to see these in the in the orbit without getting involved with them, or yeah, grabbing yeah. them. Yeah, it's like these things are just out there all and the, the time. And, and you saw that it was not that interesting to grab onto them. Well, it took me away from the. Well, I guess now I can say I was calm because as soon as I grab onto one, then there's an emotion that might accompany that uh-huh. or be triggered by that, and it's easier to just, you know let it go back out and so, these, out so, so those things are unsatisfactory as objects of clinging yes or yeah. to get involved in just exactly. let them be get yeah. let un, it's better be, leave, let them let them be so that's an insight to see what oh, it's not worth getting involved in those yeah amen <laughs> amen <laughs> good So um, I have a question about last week and a comment about the meditation today. What should I ask? Start for I like the I like the comment for now. Okay. So um, this was very um, timely to me. This meditation because um, um, in the middle to late afternoon, um, I started to feel to feel kind of depressed. And um, I guess I was probably depressed all day, but I only noticed it then. So I was trying to be busy to not notice it. Uh, And I made space for trying to be with my sadness. But I didn't have the tools that we discussed tonight yet. And so I was still with my sadness here. And when you started to talk about um, the insight into um, impermanence and not self, I really had, um, I think for the first time, really a visceral understanding of what that means because I really felt that my sadness was about not being able to control something that I couldn't control. And and my and I was pinging my happiness to being able to control that. So that's a recipe for being depressed. <laughs> but you know, like I can explain all this in a very intellectual way, and it makes complete sense. However, it's very different to actually feel it in the body. Uh, yes. And that's what I felt in in. The meditation. Fantastic. And did it make a difference for your depression? Um, Sorry? Did it make a difference with the depression? Yes, absolutely. Because I really felt that I could uh, dissociate with what was happening. And um, you know, it's interesting because it it did help. And I felt, (laughs) I was going to say something contradictory. 
because in a way I was going to say I felt more confident. And I was like, well, isn't confident then kind of selfing? <laughs> um, so I don't know how to explain that part, uh-huh. but I felt better. Great. Yeah, no, confidence doesn't have to be involved with latching on and saying, I am so confident, look at me. <laughs> it's just just a sense of confidence is there. Very simple. Great. That sounds very nice. So this, so this uh, in Buddhism we talk not so much about disassociation, but we use the word disidentify. You know, we don't say, which means that we don't have to identify and make this whole complicated self out of something. And it can be much more relaxed and just let things go by, let things rise and pass and not have to latch onto them or do something with them around the self and this means I am or something. It's just there. And so even something like the being depressed, it's just, there it is. You know, just, you know, it's, you know, it's, uh, we don't complicate it any more than it already is. Sometimes, sometimes people come to me with uh, either physical or psychological challenges in their life and they ask me if the mindfulness meditation would help with it. And generally, it, it kind of helps often with these things, but um, but I'm very careful not to promise too much. And what I say is that maybe it'll help in some ways, but um, but uh, uh, I can't guarantee it. But what it might, but what this practice can do, is help you be much more relaxed about it being this way. So you know, you know, we don't identify it. We're not making a self out of it. We're not using it to define ourselves. We're not holding on to it or clinging to it or resisting it. We're not, um, you know, living in some kind of ideas. It has to be different. Only if it's this way, then, then I'll be happy. Just kind of we relax. And it's bad enough that we're depressed. <laughs> but it's much better. It's, not, it's, it's better if you, can't, if you can be depressed and not be angry or not be frustrated or not be impatient or all these other things that we add on. So one of the, one of the hallmarks of this practice of mindfulness, one of the characteristics of it is simplicity. And, uh, and I know that sometimes the way we teach it, like even during this intermediate course, can make it very quickly very complicated. Because how many different lists did I teach you? <laughs> and, you know, I, I apologize. <laughs> and um, so you don't want to take them too seriously, but they are good lists to learn and maybe memorize and kind of internalize and get used to and once you learn them, it's like learning, riding a bicycle. It's just there, and they're ready to help you and support you. But, you, you know, you don't want to spend a lot of time thinking and analyzing and figuring out which of these lists should I do now. And It's just all is what supports you in finding your way. After a while, it doesn't seem like you're using any list at all. It's just obvious. You sit down and you notice the body or the feelings. or just That's just clear what's, what you're, where you're at. So, so one of the one of the hallmarks is simplicity and learning to be very simple with experience. And one of the ways we allow ourselves to be simple with experience is we just allow each experience to be left alone. So it just, it just arises there in its own simplicity. Um, so there's a sound of the car outside and we don't try to analyze what kind of car that is, what size engine is that, were they in the wrong gear, you know, it just it just driving by, just a sound, the simple sound we're present for. Um, we don't try to figure out, you know, that car sounds really good. If I had a car that sounded like that, I'd be the coolest person on my block. And we're making a whole self around, you know, very quickly. It's just a sound, 
or there's an itch. And we just let the itch be there, and it's uh, simple. Uh, I've, I've once, was, I remember once on retreat, I had an itch, and, and um, I thought I had skin cancer. <laughs> <laughs> and I had this whole little thing about skin cancer, you know, it's like a whole world of skin cancer, and, you know, and, um, you know, it got much more complicated than it needed to be. It could have just been an itch, the simple itch. Or there could be an emotion. And some people will very quickly make stories and meaning out of the emotions they have and will define themselves by the emotion. And it's possible to keep it really simple, just anger. It's not even my anger. Of course it's your anger, but, but you don't have to get, get in, when you're sitting meditating, being quiet, you don't have to live in the world of making up stories, this is mine. We can just say very, very simple and not identify with it. Turns out, that we keep things really simple, we, un- we have a tendency to understand things much better. And we tend to be much more relaxed about them, and that also helps us to understand things better because we see it without the filter of our stress and agitation we have towards it. Also, it turns out that being really simple with experience opens up a door to allow the whole inner life, our heart or something, to settle and relax deeply. Because when we're involved in clinging and holding and wanting, when we're involved in making up a self and living in a self and a story about the self and this and that about ourselves, that uh, it's very com- very hard to settle and be at home and settled and peaceful here and now. So the door to freedom in this practice of mindfulness is paying attention carefully, being really present in the moment, and keeping it simple. And the hope is that these more complicated teachings that I give sometimes are hopefully over time pointing towards becoming simpler, calmer, not so identified, not so trying so hard, not kind of making it all kind of a big project, but just kind of settling back and being here and steadily over time learning to be more focused, more present, less distracted, more here for your experience. And that becomes, I think, even though in Buddhism we say there's no self, or, you know, this whole not-self teaching, that as you, as you enter the present moment more and more deeply and more settled here and not spinning out in thoughts, that uh, you feel more at home in yourself, more at home in this self which is not the self. So you get into trouble with the language at some point but just more settled, more at home in your own heart, more connected, more, more alive in your inner life in a rich way. And in doing that, hopefully also uh, more compassionate and caring for the world around you. Because a simple presence that opens up so much of our depth of our being uh, helps us to sense and feel and feel connected to people. And my hope is that this practice then uh, is not just here for our own well-being, because if it's only about for you, yourself, and mine, me, myself, and mine, we're putting up walls or barriers in a sense. But when you don't take things so personally anymore, then we can actually tune in and be aware of other people better. And with that, hopefully, comes greater compassion and care for this world that we live in. So those are my thoughts for this intermediate course. I hope it's been useful for you to do it. Um, I have never taken an intermediate mindfulness class before. I've only taught it. 
meaning I don't really know how to do this. I just do my best to try to offer some more and it's meant to kind of build on the intro class and kind of continue kind of offering you some support for this. I hope that was the case. And, um, and I enjoy doing this and so I want to thank you for coming and, and uh, I wish you um, happy meditations. And when, they're not, when, and when they're not happy, that's okay, you'll know what to do. Thank you. <laughs>